All right, uh, turning to FOIA, Sam, you promised that some minor news might uh, get broken this week. What do you got? Lobbyists for the government of Honduras warned the Trump administration about Democratic lawmakers' criticism of a controversial U.S.-backed hydroelectric project in northern Honduras, which supporters attempted to advance in the weeks between the 2020 election and President Biden's inauguration. Lester Munson, a principal in the foreign affairs practice of the lobbying firm BGR Group, reached out to the Development Finance Corporation on August 31st with an email that simply stated, quote, per our discussion, attached to the email was a letter sent to the DFC signed by 28 House Democrats decrying the so-called Gilamito hydroelectric project. The DFC, the U.S. government's international development finance agency, had announced its support for Gilamito in June of 2020, noting that it was working on the project with IDB Invest, the private sector arm of the Inter-American Development Bank. In December, weeks after President Trump lost his bid for re-election, IDB Invest said it would lend the Gilamito project $20.25 million. The U.S. government has 30% of the Inter-American Development Bank's voting rights, the countries with the second most influence at the bank are Brazil and Argentina, which each have 11.3% of total votes in IDB decision-making, about one-third of Washington's sway, to give you an idea of who really wears the pants over at the IDB. In late May, the Biden administration ended up withdrawing DFC support for the Gilamito project, some $37 million in loans. The decision came after a campaign launched by activists who drew attention to criticism of the proposed dam, comparing it to the Aguazarca project, which world-renowned environmentalist Berta Cáceres was murdered for opposing in 2016. Those involved in the campaign included an organization in Honduras called the Broad Movement for Dignity and Justice, which saw at least two of its members killed in assassinations for opposing the dam. Democrats' letter, which was organized by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, noted the killings, which are common in Honduras when capitalists have their eye on land or natural resources. Reading from the letter, which was sent two weeks before BGR's outreach to the DFC, quote, Organizers against the project, including the young attorney Carlos Hernandez, representing them, have been murdered. Others have received death threats. The company in charge of the project, a firm called Inhelsa, is credibly accused by local community leaders of corruption, intimidation, and violence. The river that is being dammed is the only source of clean drinking water for the communities in the area, end of quote. The lawmakers noted that Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez has alleged connections to organized crime. He has been accused by the U.S. Department of Justice of conspiring to export cocaine to the United States, of doing favors for violent gangs in Honduras in exchange for bribes, and of having ties to at least two murders. In fact, BGR Group took the government of Honduras as a client in early 2020, not long after President Hernandez's brother, Tony, an ex-Honduran lawmaker, was convicted in a federal court in Manhattan of drug trafficking and weapons charges. Juan Orlando Hernandez was the second right-wing leader to come to power on the heels of a 2009 coup legitimized by the Obama administration, the coup ousted Manuel Zelaya, an ally of Hugo Chavez, and it led to Honduras becoming a de facto narco state governed by reactionaries with close ties to the ruling class, 
which has fueled a wave of migration that has seen hundreds of thousands of Hondurans make the journey north to the United States without papers every year since the coup. In late 2017, Hernandez was accused of election fraud in a vote that led to him winning a second term as president, winning in scarecrows. Protests in the aftermath of the election saw security forces kill at least 16 people. The letter from Democrats to the DFC noted that one of the people killed was, quote, Ramon Fialos, an organizer against the Gila Mito Dam, who is targeted by security forces for his activism. Fialos was a member of the broad movement for dignity and justice. Conservatives in the U.S. have supported the current government of Honduras despite frantically invoking white nationalist replacement theory to fret over Honduran migrants claiming asylum in the U.S. after fleeing their failing state. One thing Republicans like about the post-coup governments, they've consolidated power for the right after overthrowing an ally of Hugo Chavez. And Republicans might also like how Honduran businessmen are seemingly able to get away with murdering opponents and critics of their push for primitive accumulation. Honduran palm oil company Dinant, for example, was accused of killing more than 100 poor farmers for land in the years after the coup, a time that saw Honduran officials controversially grant natural resource rights to capitalists. Reading from a Guardian piece published in 2014, quote, peasant farmers say they are the victims of a campaign of terror by the police, army, and private security guards working for palm oil companies since a coup in June 2009 ended land negotiations instigated by the deposed President Manuel Zelaya. This time frame was also when official support for the Gilamito project picked up steam, for the record. Still reading from The Guardian, quote, Witnesses have implicated Honduran Special Forces in the 15th Battalion, which receives training and material support from the U.S. in dozens of human rights violations around the plantations of Bajo Aguan. The Republican Party's relationship with repressive reactionaries in Honduras predates the post-coup era, too. In the 1980s, the Reagan administration forged close ties with the Honduran government while supporting death squads and waging dirty wars in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Which brings us back to BGR Group. The firm has close ties to the Republican Party. It was co-founded by ex-Mississippi Governor Haley Barber, and counts real-world member turned congressman Sean Duffy as one of its team members. Duffy retired from Congress in 2019. The vast majority of political donations from individuals employed by BGR to congressional candidates, well, it goes to, you guessed it, Republicans. And Lester Munson himself boasts of having served as chief of staff for the neoconservative former Illinois Senator Mark Kirk, Per his bio on the BGR Group website, Munson is proud of Kirk's role as, quote, the leading Republican voice in the Senate on Iran. Nice to see he can still try to make the world a shittier place in the private sector, too. One more bit of FOIA news. I decided to file another request today. Seems like the seeds we have sown in this segment are starting to bear fruit, so I want to keep the request rolling as one Ken Klippenstein says, always be foyering. So I asked the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency for all emails from private sector actors and U.S. lawmakers in response to a September 21st speech given by acting Comptroller of the Currency, Michael Sue. As you may recall from a recent episode, Sue was the one who proposed a multi-agency sprint 
to come up with a framework for cryptocurrency regulation in the banking industry. Be on the lookout soon for a print piece on this on the Sentinel Substack, by the way. This story has more newsworthiness this week after Elizabeth Warren questioned Fed Chair Jerome Powell's record on financial regulation. Anyway, in his speech on September 21st, Sue compared cryptocurrency to, quote, fool's gold and also likened it to the financial instruments at the heart of the mortgage meltdown that caused the 2008 global financial collapse. How are the returns generated, Sue asked, of crypto savings accounts that offer interest rates between 4 and 14%? It is hard to get straight answers that don't quickly devolve into crypto speak if one follows the money, what lies at the end? Sue also hypothetically asked, quote, how is money being made and lost in crypto slash decentralized finance, or DeFi? For the industry to grow in a responsible way, there needs to be a straightforward way to answer this question. It cannot be cloaked in jargon if it is to build trust and resilience over time, end of quote. Anyway, I'm asking for emails to Sue about the speech from lawmakers and private sector actors because I think there might be some choice tantrums from crypto guys and their allies in Congress. As with every FOIA request, only time will tell if this is correct. And speaking of cryptocurrency, here's our interview with Jacob Silverman, staff writer for The New Republic. Just a editor's note on the interview, the audio is a little weird because we fucked it up uh, recording on the Zoom, but we'll do better next time. So Jacob, you are kind of like me, you are interested in cryptocurrency, uh, but from a skeptic's perspective, I was, ho I was hoping you could just sort of explain what is it about cryptocurrency that interests you so much, and also... Briefly, how would you explain cryptocurrency, how it works to someone who is totally unfamiliar with it, someone who hypothetically, you know, just got out of a 10-year coma, or I don't know, maybe a small child? Um, how would you explain it to, to someone who's never really heard of cryptocurrency before? Sure. Uh, well, I'll start with the first part, which is why I'm interested uh, for several reasons. One, it has a lot of influence and I think growing influence. I mean, we're speaking broadly here, but uh, you can look at, at Bitcoin as just a commodity or, or sort of cryptocurrency as an industry with many different companies and exchanges and, and, uh, and investors in the space with a lot of money traveling through. And then the real, I suppose, the most vivid or exciting reason for me is just that there's a lot of corruption and criminality in cryptocurrency. And I find that very interesting. I think there are a lot of interesting characters. There are a lot of sort of bizarre people. There are a lot of people that are straight up hucksters or criminals in some way or another. And, and then lastly, I think it's of growing economic importance. I think that uh, I do think that the cryptocurrency market, which is worth about $2 trillion, give or take, is headed for some kind of big crash. Uh, people like me who are severe skeptics think that that crash could bring it all down to zero, but maybe that's overly dramatic. But even if, you know, 30% or 50% were lopped off the value of most cryptocurrency, predominantly Bitcoin and Ethereum, that would be a huge deal. And it could spill over into other parts of the economy. So that's why when you start really looking at cryptocurrency, it can start as something just about Bitcoin or uh, one currency, but then you start looking globally and you suddenly you're reading about uh, regulation in China and the power situation in Kyrgyzstan and things like that.
on the question of like what is Bitcoin, explain how something can like become so valuable in such a, a fairly short amount of time. And then as you suggest, could crash down to zero. Sure. Well, it is hard to sort of summarize Bitcoin in, or crypto in brief, but if we just focus on, on Bitcoin, uh, basically it's, it's software. It's a distributed ledger that's uh, run via software uh, on, many, on many computers all over the world. And what it does is the software essentially reaches a consensus to add transactions or notations to a blockchain. A blockchain is a publicly viewable ledger. Uh, and through complex calculations, all these computers amend new entries to the blockchain. And so what that does is it means uh, one computer or one person or entity can't necessarily take over the whole system because it's distributed among all these computers crunching these numbers at once. The problem is as the blockchain gets bigger, as there are more participants in the network, it consumes uh, much more electricity, which is why you have uh, uh, cryptocurrency uh, excuse me, Bitcoin in particular, consuming about as much electricity as the Netherlands does in, in a year. Um, the other, th the other part of that that's necessary to note is that it does this through the the mechanism at play with these complex calculations is called proof of work, and that's how it sort of secures the system and how it establishes this consensus. Uh, and proof of work is the the dominant way that that uh, cryptocurrencies or blockchains are maintained, and they tend to be very energy intensive. Uh, just speaking more broadly, wh wh how do you think of a cryptocurrency? It's basically like an uh, unbacked money or wild or a wildcat banking in the 19th century. It's as if uh, you or me or Sears or a railroad company, uh, both either today or 150 years ago, just said, "Here's money. It has here's some Jacob bucks." Um, now, there's obviously more complex elements at play. The way that Bitcoin is distributed through this process of mining, which is part of also proof of work, uh, is much different than sort of me giving out Jacob bucks randomly. But um, it's, it's useful to think about it that way. It's basically just private money. It's not backed by uh, any official bank. It's not regulated. It's not insured by the FDIC. You're not really protected from any sort of malfeasance by the federal government. And that's why you a lot of people like me are really worried about uh, regulation and, and also just everyday people getting burned. Yeah, I think that a lot of crypto fans, um, and, and we can talk about the culture uh, surrounding the, the, the cryptocurrency industry later, but I think a lot of crypto fans kind of have a, a point in that um, fiat currency, like the US dollar is is built upon basically um, a, a system of banking records, right? Like private banks can um, can increase the money supply, um, you know, just by having enough uh, uh, enough assets in their book and just sort of changing a few numbers, calling up the uh, the local Fed uh, or, or uh, submitting records to the local Fed. It, like it's not backed by gold; it used to be, and that's a whole other. Um, that's a whole other conversation, but but um, you know, currency seems to have most use as a medium of exchange when there is like sort of a, a, an agreed upon value, right? Like when it's a measurement, um, and not only that, uh, fiat currency is you know there are all sorts of rules around it, and governments accept it for for. For tax purposes, right? You're not going to pay your taxes in 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 squid coin or whatever. 
Not yet. Uh, not yet. Some but, local cities you might. Aren't, aren't some like cities trying to allow that to happen? Well, Miami is trying to do that um, and, and trying to pay people in Bitcoin. And they have their own Miami coin that they're unveiling. But I need to read up a little bit more on what's intended with Miami coin. But I, I think it's what a lot of crypto Promoted is. Promoted by Pitbull. <laughs> yeah, a, a tool of speculation. Um, but to answer, to sort of answer a couple of those questions in there, I think crypto is sort of worth as much as what some people say it is. Um, there's something in economics called the greater fool theory, which is basically that some assets have no real value, but their value is sort of pegged to what you can convince another fool to pay for it, someone who's a greater fool than you. And that's how a lot of crypto markets work and how sort of the the uh, value or price of, of Bitcoin in particular keeps or stays relatively high is that there's a lot of easy money juice in the market and a lot of retail traders money juice in the market. And uh, it's um, you have to ha call an economist to, to explain it and, and to tell you why it's different from say quantitative easing. But, but um, it's really just about an article of faith. But what, what is also interesting about all this is it does make you think about what is money, what is currency, and yeah, the dollar may not be pegged to gold anymore, or backed by gold, but it's still backed by the, the faith of the United States government and the, and the military apparatus and the state and everything that comes with that for, for good or ill. There's a whole and, and sort like, of yeah, system like, behind it. And like I said, the tax revenue too is a big thing, right? Like, I mean, you know, the demand for dollars will always be there because that's what you have to pay your taxes in. Um, well, but one it, thing... I'm oh, sorry, sorry go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I think one thing worth noting maybe is that there are different degrees of sort of Bitcoin faithful and crypto faithful, but people so-called Bitcoin maximalists uh, don't think the dollar is always going to be there. And they, th they desperately fear um, sort of the, the Fed uh, pumping liquidity into the markets. They think inflation is sort of a fait accompli and that we're all going to, and the dollar is going to crash and somehow be worthless. Um, I mean, there are many rationalizations and sort of shibboleths that they have for what they do, but that I think is the most extreme end of, of sort of the crypto cult is this idea that Bitcoin is actually going to replace the dollar out of perhaps even out of necessity. And I just find that so far-fetched. The, uh, the, the crypto enthusiasts, you know, um, of many varying degrees, love to describe their asset class and their industry as decentralized. I believe you you mentioned that in um, some of your prior answers. But how do you rate that description? I mean, it 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 seems like they're trying to um, use it as a synonym for unregulated, and um, you know, like financial systems have become centralized for a reason, uh, you know, to sort of make sure that people have faith and trust in them. Right. I, I think the role of decentralization, both as a sort of practice and technological tool, and even, uh, especially in rhetoric, is really interesting in this area. I mean, even people on the left uh, who are interested in crypto sometimes see decentralization as a way to to distribute power and fight back against the big tech companies and increasingly as sort of the, the anti-tech right uh, is, is kind of adopting some of that line. But I think you have to ask what decentralization really means and also how practical or, or substantive is it in practice? I mean, just the other day you had um, a, 
a, an exchange, one of the big exchanges, I believe it was uh, FTX, uh, they accidentally sent uh, something like $27 million worth of uh, a stable coin called Tether uh, for a transaction that was something like in the five figures. So anyway, the, the short of it is they accidentally paid a huge fee for basically a five figure transaction. They paid a multi-million dollar fee. And it was they claimed it was because someone hit the wrong button. It was sort of a fat finger scenario. And in the idealized central decentralized world of crypto, that's sort of like too bad. Uh, there aren't really the mechanisms necessarily to undo that, or so you think. But pretty pretty quickly, Tether responded, froze some of the assets, and was able to work with the miners who were who helped verify that transaction uh, through that very computationally energy intensive proof of work that I talked about earlier. And they were able to send it back. So there are different ways in which you see this. These companies start saying. Oh, we don't, we don't, we can't do KYC, which is know your customer or AML, anti-money laundering stuff, which are staples of the finance industry because it's all decentralized. But then when push comes to shove or their own interest is at stake, they are able to do that. And so I think that also calls into question how some of these systems are designed and what they're really for or decentralized for. And I think that goes back to your original question, which is that they're decentralized really to, to avoid scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, getting, I guess, more into the, the politics at work here, like there, as you said, there's always been alternative currencies for, for a variety of reasons, whether it's like, you know, local cities trying to protect their local economy or something and introducing their own economy or, or bosses trying to have like greater control of their workers by introducing like some local currency in a company town or something like that. But as far as like a currency to that's specifically focused against centralization or against like surveillance of, of some sort, like it, there's this very libertarian bend to crypto that and libertarians are often correct in like their critiques of the state and critiques of centralization and things like that, but their solutions are often like disastrous here and it like do you see the rise of of bitcoin or another cryptocurrencies being like a uh, an outgrowth not just of the technology making all this possible but also like a, a failure of governments and markets you know or at least like perceived markets and allowing this opening for libertarian thought into like currency yeah i i think there's certainly something to that i mean just look at the last 20 years, we've had a lot of economic upheaval and, and you know, major crashes around the dot-com bubble and in 2008. And, you know, mainstream finance doesn't have a lot to recommend it. And that's one thing I hear a lot from crypto people is they say, well, look, you're, you're just defending fiat or central banks suck and exercise their own kind of dictatorial control or even on sort of more of the left, you know, what about the, the, all the injustices of, of mainstream finance? and the volatility in mainstream finance too. And I think a, a lot of that is true, but the problem is you, you, you often, or at least in the role I play, get cast as sort of an apologist by default for fiat and for central banks uh, when you're really trying to focus on the, the glaring deficiencies of crypto. But yeah, so that means I think there is some systemic breakdown and a growing mistrust in institutions, growing inability to deal with income inequality. I mean, you talk to people who, are investing in crypto on Coinbase or, or Robinhood, or now you can do it via um, PayPal and Venmo very easily. A lot, there are a lot of everyday people and a lot of low-income people, frankly, who are just hoping to strike it rich. 
and it's been marketed to them that way. Uh, and so I think it's very understandable that people fall into this. Or, and, uh, but, and I think that people come with varying motivations and varying levels of sort of ideological awareness. But yeah, I, I think some of that does certainly stem from larger failures of how we run our economy in a fair way. Yeah, I just I feel like I, if we had a more equitable like society and uh, like a Fed that wasn't functioning on behalf of like mostly banks and stuff like that and people, you know, were in general, there just wouldn't be a, a cryptocurrency demand, but maybe that's like being naive and there still would be, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think some aspects of, of what cryptocurrency tries to offer, especially on sort of the, the cypherpunk privacy, cryptographic uh, fixated side of, of less surveillance and privacy and less interference from the state is, is potentially appealing or admirable. But yeah, then there are issues, of course there are trade-offs when money can't be uh, censored by the state as, as crypto believers call it, uh, then you can do anything and it's, and it's an incredibly useful uh, criminal tool. I think also the privacy enhancing aspects of it are also quite useful to hedge funds. Um, they can either anonymously or almost anonymously take positions um, in, 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 on various cryptocurrencies um, and you know, under SEC disclosure rules, they still don't have to disclose it. And I also wanted to say on top of that, which it, it, it's a, the fact that hedge funds are increasingly in this industry, I, I like to call it an industry. A lot of people in cryptocurrency like to call it a space. And I think yeah. that's really, um, you know, uh, it, 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 that word kind of makes my skin crawl when they're talking about something that's blatantly an industry. Um, but, it, you know, the hedge funds participation and when you look at various tokens and how they are, um, most of them, many of them are uh, uh, majority owned or are mostly owned by, the, sorry, majority owned isn't a great word, but there are a lot of whales, you know, uh, large investors who, um, you know, have uh, their positions in various coins are market moving, right? Like if, if they decide one day they're, they're sick of playing with, um, you know, a seal coin or whatever, they just dump it all and sell it. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, Elon Musk, right? Like, right. I mean, is Musk one of these figures? Yes, yes, he is. I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there really is no such thing as a decentralized market in a laissez-faire framework, which tends toward a few people, you know, a few profit-maximizing individuals controlling everything so that they can accumulate more capital. I agree. Like it's, and it's not just the exchanges, is what I'm trying to say. It's like, yeah, we have really... exchanges have a lot of control over everything, but market participants do too. It's like you've replaced the Fed with Elon Musk and his buddies. Yeah, pretty much. And I think that's one thing that people underestimate. And we haven't really gotten to the world of DeFi or decentralized finance, but even if you're talking about what's going on in some of the major exchanges, like if you if you buy like just a some Bitcoin a few years, if you bought some a few years ago and held on to it, like you, you've done well, probably made and made a bunch of money. And there's stories like there like that out there. But if you try to day trade or or be more of a market participant, these companies will and the whales will just eat you alive. I mean, 
And the more I really talk to people who understand the, the flows of coins and, ca and capital in and out of these exchanges and who study the uh, uh, transactions between wallets and who know what's going on with some of the big stable coins and stuff like that, it's really dominated by only a few big uh, institutional players and some companies that most people have never heard of, like com this company Cumberland Trading and uh, RTX and um, and you know this guy Sam Bankman Freed. They're just a few big uh, whales in their sort of uh, hedge funds and, and research arms that are m m exactly moving the market quite a bit and are much more sophisticated than uh, I'm sorry to say than any everyday trader. Here's a company that um, that uh, in the cryptocurrency industry that people might recognize um, if they're at all familiar with the industry and has to do with retail traders. Um, it's called Binance. And uh, I don't know if this is still the case. Uh, things, things tend to change quickly um, in, in the disruptor, in one of these disruptor industries. But just a few months ago, Binance had a leverage ratio of 125 to 1 meaning that if you had just $1,000 in fiat money, you could buy $125,000 worth of crypto. And um, this seems to, to, to buttress your argument that this shit is a house of cards and it's coming down soon. Uh, what are your thoughts on debt-fueled crypto trading? I mean, I think it's been crazy. I, I, think, uh, I think just simply looking at this stuff, a lot of the metaphors of casino capitalism, of wholly unregulated finance, uh, of finance's worst excesses of things being highly over leveraged, uh, of complex derivative products that people don't understand, they're all here and they're all sort of in their most extreme forms. And in terms of market manipulation, insider trading, and a, f and a few big players working together, uh, it, it, all of that is happening here. I mean, even a company like, like Binance is very important because it, I, I believe it's the world's largest exchange. I think it has no legal home at this point, um, and it's being Which investigated. Which is just as well because it's being investigated by yeah. pretty much every country. If you if the country has a government, it's probably investing investigating Binance. Yeah, from here to Thailand, it's being investigated all over, and it it and it has some very suspect relationships with some of the big uh, market mover for market maker firms, trading firms that use it to trade. Um, so. I think that's very disturbing. And, and just another sort of simple fact here, looking at these ideas of debt and leverage is that uh, right now, if you own uh, stable coins, which are we're something we, we can talk about or not, but um, what you can do is say, basically, I, I own a certain amount of money uh, in the form of these coins and account, you can lend them out now at extremely high rates through one of these, uh, one of these platforms or exchanges. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're lending out cash in, in a savings account, basically, if you have a savings account, or, or a CD or something like that, you're getting low single digit interest rates. On some of these platforms, you're getting 20% or more per year. And that's just, there's a question of how are they paying for that? Like, are they just using VC cash? Do they have crazy revenue streams that we don't know about? But the idea that you could loan out a dollar and get 20% annual interest on that dollar is crazy. It, it is crazy. And it is, it is absolutely wild that um, these these firms are offering these types of, of interest rates, and um, I, I do want to get into stable coins in a second. But I also want to mention um, the recent Coinbase kerfuffle. Um, Coinbase, another major player in the crypto industry, it recently revealed that the SEC 
um, issued a cease and desist saying they were trying to uh, basically issue an unregulated security that they would have to register or you know, not, not offer at all. Um, the company responded by saying, this isn't, this isn't a security. We're just, you know, we want to borrow money basically from our customers, which, you know, if you know basic things about bond, that's a bond. Um, but what was troubling was the company was saying, well, we pay out no matter how our company performs, which like, if you take it to its logical conclusion is total bullshit because obviously like the company can't pay it out if it fails. Right. And, um, you know, in normal finance space, you have, you have, um, you have banks that are insured that, that have deposit insurance, you know, backed by the government where if that does happen, you get probably all of your money back unless you have over $250,000. Um, but it just seems like there's so much arrogance here and it's mm -hmm. just really kind of astonishing that this is all happening, you know, less than 15 years after our last major financial crisis. Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, one thing, especially with that question of arrogance, I mean, you have a lot, Coinbase's chief executive, Brian Armstrong, and others who are saying, oh, we, we don't mind a little regulation. We're going to tell you what to do, though. Uh, and who, who have said, we want to suggest regulations or we want meetings with you. Now, the government, uh, the SEC and other agencies, I believe, have been taking meetings with, with a lot of industry players, which is understandable. But I, I and not to be sort of a, a, a shill for this or a simp for the state or for the SEC, which aren't necessarily perfect organizations, but there's certainly some regulation coming, I think, very soon, probably the next few weeks. I mean, there have been some small enforcement actions recently. And I think, uh, I think these companies are going to be surprised, actually. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if any are, are going to you know, collapse in spectacular fashion, even if some maybe deserve to. But I think their arrogance will hopefully, or perhaps just in the course of things, undermine them a bit, because the SEC and the DOJ are coming after some of these companies for sure. Okay, let's, let's move on to stable coins finally, because mm -hmm. it is a, a white hot topic right now. Um, you know, as, as we've sort of said, crypto people don't really take too kindly to criticism of their industry, but even they seem to realize that there's, there's some shadiness going on with stable coins. Uh, what's going on there? Why are even, even crypto people uh, worried about this? Yeah, this really gets to the heart of things, I think. And this is sort of one of my fixations. Um, stable coins are coins that have fixed value. So unlike uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, they're not supposed to fluctuate in value. Uh, the most highly traded stable coin is Tether. It's worth a dollar per coin. And uh, it's, it's run by an exceedingly shady company, which is, which is I have no hesitation to say. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, sort of bizarre things about them. Tether, though, reportedly, is reportedly shady company. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, allegedly, allegedly. Shady um, company, according to various state regulators, including New York Attorney General. Yeah, they, they, they already had an $18 million settlement with the New York <laughs> Attorney General. And so the big thing about, and they were barred from doing business in New York, among other things. And the, and the New York Attorney General said they lied about their holdings. So this is the big thing about stable coins and about Tether in particular. Um, so just to be clear, also, Tether is traded more than Bitcoin. The volume per day is much greater than Bitcoin. So basically, Tether and other stable coins like uh, USDC, and there are a few other big ones, Paxos, 
They help provide liquidity to markets. Basically, you convert your fiat money into a stable coin, and then it's easier to trade uh, on the exchange. It's easier to trade between exchanges or, or blockchains and things like that. Um, I just want to say it actually sounds kind of useful, right? Because like there is there is a potential use for, it, and this is why you hear a lot of talk that there actually should be some sort of government-backed digital dollar or uh, or ce central bank digital currency, CBDC, as it's often called. And that's something where I think it's certainly worth research and, and, and moving ahead on potentially. But the problem with Tether is it goes back to our original, so one of our original points was just, this is basically just uh, private fantasy money. This is, so what ostensibly happens is a, a company or an individual says to Tether, uh, we want a hundred stable, well, we want a hundred Tether or a million Tether. Here's the equivalent in dollars. And then they, they give them the stable coins, the, the Tethers. But the widespread suspicion, even among crypto enthusiasts, is that Tether is simply printing coins, minting coins whenever it wants. And there's been a lot of study of Tether and its, and its habits of minting coins. Also, and the reason why it does this is, say, is perhaps obvious, but if I have, uh, if I have a money-making machine, a money-printing machine, I can do with it whatever I want, which is... Which, in this market means I can send it to my allies at other trading firms and companies, uh, people I have potentially have deals with, and they can buy Bitcoin or I can buy Bitcoin with it on someone else's exchange. And then the whole nice cycle of, of market inflation and asset inflation and then money laundering proceeds from there. Um, exactly how this all plays out is still up for debate, but Tether is being investigated by uh, several agencies. I filed a FOIA recently that basically came back with a rejection, but with the sort of language that indicates the SEC might be investigating it. Uh, Bloomberg has reported that the DOJ is investigating the Tether executives for bank fraud, which is pretty serious. Um, so what we do know about Tether, uh, among many things that they've gone through in their history, including misappropriating hundreds of millions of dollars in assets and things like that, is that they're only 3% backed by cash, at least so they claim. So that means it's three cents for every dollar when it should, when at one point they said they were fully backed by cash. So this is the problem with Tether is that at the heart of the crypto ecosystem, the, the, the one stable coin that's used as trade more than any other coin and that's you, that whose price is, whose uh, trading volume is very much connected to the price of, of Bitcoin may be a, a, a fraud at its core. And if you take away Tether, there could be a huge market crash and there may be sort of what's called contagion or other sort of knock-on effects from there. Yeah. So, that's, um, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sam. And I guess that's the scenario that you, revisiting what you said at the beginning, Jacob, when you said that it could go down to zero. Um, yeah. That's, that's sort of the scenario. Well, and also uh, maybe I should say that there's $67 billion worth of tether in circulation. That's bigger than the Madoff Ponzi scheme. This is potentially the, if it is a Ponzi, uh, it's potentially the biggest Ponzi scheme of all time. And in the case of Madoff, people did claw back some money. Um, I, I don't remember how much exactly, but. Um, like, what is the process if you have these Tether coins and want to get your dollars back? What well, is that's the process a, of doing That's that? a good question. Uh, there's a lot of debate there too, because there are conflicting reports about whether people are actually able to redeem Tethers for dollars from Tether. Uh, what people often do is, and some people say, oh yeah, it's no problem. But it also seems to be institutional traders who, who have the easiest time doing that. I mean, one, one common scenario you see in the crypto world is you go onto Reddit, look on the Coinbase threads or somewhere else, and you'll see someone, uh, lots of people saying, 
I can't get my money out of the exchange. They won't let me withdraw my money. And it's a similar thing with Tether is that these companies need, need the fresh injections of capital and they need a lot of uh, fiat flowing through the system. They don't want fiat flowing out. So Tether is hard to exchange. What you saw recently with the China crackdown is tons of Tether flowing out of China. And actually the peg, as it's called, was, was broken in China in that uh, the Tether usually trade for something like 6.5 uh, 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 on, the, on the dollar there, the local currency. Uh, and it was down to like 5.2 or something like that. So basically it's as if uh, Tether were suddenly worth 90 cents instead of a dollar, which is a big difference. And, that sh and it undermines the, the fundamental purpose of a stable coin. And this is because basically everyone in China is trying to get their tethers out and convert them into other stable coins or other crypto or fiat if they can, but it, it's hard. And a lot of stable coin um, undergirds the um, emerging DeFi decentralized finance industry. And I mean, that seems to have like sort of a magnifying effect. I mean, you can, you can sort of imagine people um, tied up in a web of contracts and a certain number of people try to redeem their tether, um, you know, being unable to, and it just sort of having like knock on complications all up and down the uh, finance chain. Totally. And, and, the, and also a simple metaphor is a run on the bank. That's what you might see if Tether collapses or if it breaks the peg. Uh, you might see a run on the bank, suddenly Tether's either worthless or worth 50 cents or 20 cents. And from there, the whole crypto economy could unravel and who knows what else. But because this $2 trillion of, of sort of potentially limitless or potentially zero value. Um, the, the other thing I, I would say is that as you, as you guys gestured at earlier, there are people in crypto who think, yeah, Tether is a scam or Tether is at least too shady or too unreliable to be a central part of the crypto economy. And somehow we have to move on. So there are people who want to either replace it with a, with a, with a decently regulated or more reliable stablecoin, or there are people who, who are sort of hoping for a crash so they can rise from the ashes, so to speak. Um, just one of many fun factoids about Tether, its CEO hasn't been seen or heard from in I think almost a decade. Uh, nearly all public appearances are done by the chief technology officer and the chief legal counsel. Well, I can, I can relate to him there trying to avoid people. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's you certainly know, why not? relatable. It, it does strike me though, because, um, and we only have a few minutes left on this Zoom. I don't want to talk too long here, but it does strike me that it seems like stable coin, um, the, the concept of a stable coin is critical to these um, these DeFi deposit business models of so-called guaranteed returns because they know those returns are offered a, a, are harder to offer if, if you're offering them in wildly fluctuating, you know, um, log coin or whatever, cash coin. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't gotten too deep into decentralized finance, but I think, uh, I mean, that's one area where, I, you know, I think there is there are ways to sort of regulate and 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 tame this industry a little bit, even if uh, we may not bring it fully under control. Or I don't see a lot of of positive innovation coming from crypto in general. But um, decentralized finance is, is even sort of more where where trades and and contracts are sort of are just executed by code with very little intervention are even more perilous. I think in a lot of ways and are obviously uh, even more immune to, to regulation. 
And that's one area where I don't know how we sort of claw back some or bring back some guardrails. I think one thing that you do see though with in terms of the idea of regulating crypto or bringing some control to it is that you, you control the on-ramps and off-ramps because people do eventually want their money back in fiat. So if you can apply some sensible regulations to the banks and the more mainstream exchanges and things like that, where money really is going to flow through and be converted back and forth between fiat, that's maybe ways in which you can at least tame this industry a little bit, crack down ransomware, things like that, have fewer pump and dump schemes, all of that. Well, one interesting thing is that if we see this run on uh, stable coins and if we see uh, market catastrophe, we will be reminded in real time of why central banks were created in the first place. Um, so that, that'll be a fun day online. Uh, if that and if and when that does happen. Um, Jacob Silverman is a staff writer at the New Republic. He is on parental leave. You can find him on Twitter at Silverman Jacob. A, uh, an interesting name there for someone who is uh, who's into the world of, of various uh, stores of value, I suppose. Uh, Jacob, thanks so much for joining us. It was fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jacob.